verse 16. The text reads like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the, uh, to the, uh, the Europagus, um, saying, may, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know what, the, what these things mean. Now when all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Europagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they, should seek, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. And some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Europagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. He was only 18, going on 19, when he found himself far from his native soil of the Connecticut River Valley in the throes of a church split 
in a Presbyterian church in New York City. Listen as Stephen Nichols describes the life of Jonathan Edwards before he was Jonathan Edwards. He had been invited to pastor the minority faction, that is of the church split, somewhere along the docks of the New York City Harbor. New York wasn't nearly as busy in 1722 as it is now. The population hovered around just under 10,000. For a young man from the idyllic setting of small town New England, however, it was a place unlike any he had ever seen. Amidst all of this uncertainty and flux, this young man, Jonathan Edwards, needed both a place to stand and a compass for some direction. So he took to writing. He kept a diary and he penned some guidelines which he came to call his resolutions. These resolutions would supply both that place for him to stand and a compass to guide him as he made his way. And here is just a fraction of the first sentence of his first resolution. Quote, resolved. That I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. He was young when he wrote those words, but he well understood that a life lived to the glory of God was truly to live. That to be resolved to do whatsoever we know to be most to God's glory is life itself. More than just a life well lived, but actually to live full stop. And Edwards knew that the opposite was therefore true. Idolatry is suicide. We read, didn't we, at the beginning of our service, Psalm 115, that says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That is they become lifeless. They become as lifeless as the wood before which they bow and worship. Well, we come tonight to one of the most memorable moments in the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul stepped into the ring with the idolatry of the Athenians. You remember Athens was the capital of the Greco-Roman world. Paul had arrived, having been run out of Berea. You remember the unbelieving Jews of Thessalonica followed him all the way to Berea, and they chased him out of town. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy, and someone captured the, the worldly glory of the Athens of which Paul found, found himself a stranger when he wrote, the buildings and monuments of Athens were unrivaled. 
At the Acropolis, the town's ancient citadel, which was elevated enough to be seen for, for miles around, has been described as one vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory and the worship of the gods. Even today, although now a partial ruin, the Parthenon, a temple, has a unique grandeur. And so that as Paul and waited for Silas and Timothy to come to him from Berea, we read in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The sense is even that the city was underneath idols, as though it were smothered over in idolatry. And so he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Quick history lesson for us all. The Epicureans were those who believed that the gods were so remote, so abstract that they were uninterested totally uninterested in our lives down here on earth, which meant that we were at the mercy of chance. And according to the Epicureans, the the chief end of man was basically to have a good time. That since the gods didn't care about us, we should just take care of ourselves by maximizing our pleasure. Maybe that's what you believe here tonight. And the Stoics believed in a God who was one with creation, Pantheism, a a world soul, if you like. No distinct being of God, no distinct divine mind, no divine plan, no life after death, just fate. Deal with it, full stop. And so the chief end of man for the Stoics was to learn to endure whatever fate had in store for you, no matter how brutal it is. Someone put it like this, the Epicurean said, enjoy your life. The Stoic said, enjoy your life. And as they both heard Paul preach the gospel of Jesus, verse 18, they said, what does this babbler wish to say? That is, who is this that pecks at ideas the way a chicken pecks at seeds and spits them out of his mouth? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. The Areopagus being really the center of philosophical debate, the pinnacle of intellectual prowess. Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Okay, today we call that Twitter. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And in this dramatic moment, Paul preaches that the unknown God is God. That the God who has been overlooked by them all their lives long, the God whom they have only paid lip service to at best, is in fact the God of heaven and earth. 
The unknown God is God. And Paul proclaimed that by expounding, explaining, number one, God is independent. Number two, God is imminent. And number three, God is judge. Before we get there, do let me say this. This, friends, is not an irrelevant philosophical debate between a bunch of people long dead. This was then, and this is now, life and death. This is everything. Reject what Paul has to say, reject heaven. Embrace what the Epicureans or the Stoics or whatever else people embrace today, embrace hell and a lost eternity. And the reality is you can't know what life is for unless you know the author of life, the God whom Paul proclaimed. And you can't have the answers to life's big questions unless you understand the divine mind being revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can't answer any of the questions you have without knowing the one who has the answers. And so Paul took his axe of theology to the root of their idolatry. For their good and for their salvation, not for their condemnation and not for their judgment. And may that be so for you here tonight. So Paul says, number one, God is independent. Look again at verse 24. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything. So that in one fell slew, Paul really refuted both schools of thought here. He refuted the Stoics by proclaiming that God is over and above and distinct from creation, not one with creation. And he refuted the Epicureans because he said, God is so self sufficient, God is so independent that not only does he not need us. Not only does he not need our temples and our sacrifices, but he gives to us. We don't prop him up. He props us up. And and we don't supply God's needs. God supplies our needs. Because God has no needs. And if God had needs, he certainly wouldn't tell you or me or us about it. He says, men, if you can collapse and fold up your gods and stuff him inside of a man-made temple, then your gods are too small. And Paul is taking a bulldozer, if you will, to both philosophical systems as he proclaimed that the unknown God is God indeed. Now to us, the idea that the gods or a god could need anything from us is utterly ridiculous And we would want to hold up our hand and say, why even bother worshipping a God who needs us? But there is a real answer to that question. Because if God needs me, then that elevates me. And you know, that is the essence of idolatry. The bringing down of God. And the lifting up of man. The best modern day example I could think of in my study this past week is 
in actual fact, Mormonism. Listen to the strapline that flies over the church that they call Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Quote, as man now is, so God once was. As God now is, so man may become. And they teach that Yahweh is an engendered male from the planet Kolob who was elevated to Godhood by obedience to his God. And that we can all become as Yahweh is right now by obedience to the God of this earth. Why would that be appealing to any sane human being? Because it brings God down and lifts man up. I can be like God. Does that sound familiar to any of us? But friends, the truth is this. It is more blessed to decrease than to increase. Because when your God is Paul's God, the maker of heaven and earth, the potentate of time, the one who reigns and rules over the kingdoms of creation, who would be fine if he had never created man in the first place, your pride will take a pummeling, but his arm alone will uphold you when you are falling down. And he will uphold you. And he will strengthen you by an omnipotent arm that only he has. That when God says, be still and know that I am God, that only means something if he is, in fact, God. The greater he is, the greater your peace can be. Ask yourself, did the disciples need a weak God whom they could become when they were staring death in the face on the Sea of Galilee? No, friend, they needed a God who could order creation around. And only then did they know peace like a river that attendeth their way. I told you all about the time when one of my living preaching heroes, not Spurgeon this time, someone who is actually alive on planet Earth, and he preached on Isaiah chapter 6, New Year's Eve. And he said, I made it my ambition not to make a single point of application. I'm just going to spend the entire time lifting up the grandeur and the greatness of God. And he said months later, a family approached him and said that they'd found that there'd been abuse in their family among their daughters. And they said, Pastor, do you know the only thing that has gotten us through this time has been that sermon that you preached on the greatness of God. And knowing that he is over it all has been the rock underneath our feet. That he's not swayed by anything. He's not taken off guard by anything. He is God. And the idea of a tiny God will stroke your ego, but it will be absolutely powerless when the doctor looks you in the eye and says, it's cancer. Or when your spouse dies. Or when the child runs away. 
Friend, in those moments, you need the God and the maker of heaven and earth on your side. Do you know that God today? Are you in a saving relationship with that God today through our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I want us to see second that God is imminent. He's independent, number one, but he's also imminent. That just simply means that God is at hand. He's nearby. Look at verse 26. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And so this was another striking of the axe at the root of Stoicism and Epicureanism. Because again, the Epicureans believe that everything in creation is just a giant accident. Nothing but coincidence. And the Stoics believed in fate, but Paul is looking them dead in the eye. And he's saying with all seriousness, the true God has intentionally ordered all things so that we might know him. Intentionally, according to the divine mind, he has made himself accessible And has become near to us all. He's not remote. He's not far removed. He is near to us all. And he has determined the place of your birth. He's determined the time of your death. He has determined who your parents would be. He has determined what your personality would be like. In order for you to reach out and to know him. Now as we hear this. Many of us feel a little bit nervous. Because we think to ourselves. Yeah but Paul we we can't feel our way to God. God has to come to us. But the point, friends, is that is only owing to our sinfulness, not owing to the nature of God. God isn't hiding from anyone. God is not hiding from anyone. He is imminent. He is near at hand. He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He came and preached peace to you who were far off. But the reason that we can't find him is because we got ourselves lost in sin. And even the, these verbs in the, in the Greek, feel, thou, feel their way and find, are in what's called the optive mood, uh, mood in Greek, which just means a possibility that is out of reach. Not because of who God is, but because of who we are. And Paul goes on so far as to quote Stoic philosophers to make that very point that God is near to us all and that that knowledge of God is baked into who we are as human beings and image bearers of God, his offspring, not in terms of redemption, but in terms of creation. And so can I say this? The unknown God may well be unknown to you, but you are not unknown to this unknown God. He is near to you. He knows when you stand up and when you sit down. He sees you're going out and you're coming in. And the hairs of your head are numbered. He sees it all. He knows it all. Every detail about your life was carefully ordained by God in order for you to come to know Him. None of it's by accident. The reason you were born into a free country 
where it's safe for you to come to church is because God wants you in church. The reason you, you're educated and able to read the scriptures, able to construe theological arguments is because God wants you to know what he's like through his written word. And the reason that you were born into a Christian home is because God wanted you to hear the name of Jesus' his son very, very often. And the reason that that friend dragged you here tonight is because God wants to come to meet you and for you to know him. And even the negative things in our lives like physical difficulties and physical disabilities are all ordained of God that men may come to lean on the strength that God supplies. And sin has alienated us from God, but God has entrusted to us believers the ministry of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God so that even if right now God is enabling you to believe, to to reach out your hand, to take a hold of this God, then do it. Grab a hold of him by faith and by faith alone and be saved. But there's so much that we believers can learn here, isn't there as well? It's amazing, Paul quotes these pagan poets to make a theological point. Why? Well, again, to prove that God is baked into the fabric of who we are. So that even though we don't know it, even though we don't want to know God, the soul's longing for God is still there. And we can try and blast it out of our lives through sin and rebellion, but it isn't going anywhere. So what should we believers do? Well, we should know our culture well enough to be able to expose the longings of lost men and women and tell them that those longings can be traced back to the one who made them. Can I just give us one example tonight? Fleet Foxes, they're a Seattle-based indie band and they open a song with these words, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. But I don't know, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday. You will see. Well, we know what that is. And so believers, help your friends to see that every longing That every unmet desire flows out of the soul's recognition and yearning for God. They don't know it. They don't want to know it. But you can help them to see it. Well, lastly, I want us to see he is judge. God is judge. God is independent. God is imminent. God is judge. Look at verse 29. Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so the unknown God for whom the Stoics and the Epicureans paid lip service will be the God before whom they stand on the day of judgment. And he will not be unknown to them then. 
And so he calls all men and all women and all boys and girls to repent before it is too late. Neither the Stoics nor the Epicureans believed in life after death. Once you're dead, you're dead. Just like many, many people in the UK believe today. But regardless of what they believe, the consistent testimony of Scripture is that there is a day of reckoning coming. And that God has made that clear to all men by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Daniel chapter says this, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And in Matthew 25, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then later in the passage, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And later still in the passage, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And Michael preached on these verses only a couple of weeks ago from 1 Thessalonians 5. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. What does all that mean for you unbelievers here tonight? It is very simple. You can boil it down to one word. Repent. Repent. Turn from sin. You might think all of this is irrelevant to you because you're not a Stoic or an Epicurean. Maybe you only heard those words tonight for the very first time. And maybe you'd say, Hugh or Paul, this is all irrelevant to me because I don't have any idols. I don't have any statues that I bow down to. But one theologian said this, the human heart is an idol factory. And the thing that you turn to for joy, for solace, for comfort, for assurance is in reality your God. So friend, what do you turn to? Who do you turn to? Is it food? Is it your bank balance? Is it sensual pleasure? Is it social media? Is it friends? Whatever you go to for relief, for comfort, for joy and solace, that is your God. And that God will be powerless to save you when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. But to us believers, let me say this, the last day must inform this day. That was the impetus, wasn't it? That was the the fuel behind Paul's message at the Areopagus. 
the last day fueling this day. I came across this quote this past week from Henry Martin at the beginning of the 20th century. He was in Persia, surrounded by the worship of Allah. And he said this quote, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonored. And yet to many of us, the blaspheming of his name is nothing. Because we're used to it. Because it's the norm. We live in the Areopagus. We live in Athens. A land not only full of idols, but under the power of idols. Church, we need to wake up. And we need to have the last day inform this day. For the glory of this unknown God. And for the good of our fellow men. Amen.